morning, people of Good Shepherd. Good morning. As we turn to hear from God's word this morning, we seek to receive it with reverence and humility. The summons to the word found in your bulletin helps us to do just that. Let's read it together. Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. This morning's scripture reading is taken from Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. In the Blue Pew Bible, it can be found on page 975. Again, the text is Romans 12, verses 3 through 8, found on page 975 of the Blue Pew Bibles. Hear now the word of the Lord. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophecy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. And if it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. This is the end of the book, God's Word. Thank you, Pam. Let's, uh, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we come to you expecting you to show up, longing for you to show us who you are and what you have done. Father, remind us of your scandalous welcome. Father, may you uh, sober our hearts through warning. May you uh, give illumination and uh, encouragement through the wisdom that you have in your word. Father, uh, may uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, just to give us, uh, as we've been beginning our, our, our journey through Romans 12 through 15, I want to just remind us very quickly of the big picture. We saw in chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul talks about God's mercy. He says this, he speaks of God's welcome, that's the word I use, God's mercy, God's welcome. He says, in view of God's mercy, that is in view of God's prior welcome, a welcome that is to any soul. Right? Any soul, no matter what kind of sin, no matter what color of skin, right? It's a welcome that is, as we said, to all the wrong people, the people that we think are least deserving. In light of that welcome, a welcome that comes through the sacrifice of his own son. Think about that. A welcome that comes through, through the Father, not sparing his own son. Through that welcome, or because of that welcome, we are called to worship, right? It says, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. That is to say, his prior welcome means our pursuit of his worship. It's an astonishing idea that he is so welcoming. In fact, we saw it in one of the songs we're singing this morning. There's beautiful songs celebrating God's holiness that speak of who else will welcome us as our Father has done. Who else will embrace us? Who else 
will receive us in this amazing way. In light of that incomparability, that he is unique in his welcome, that there is no one more welcoming, whom else would we worship? And so again, this exceptional, exclusive welcome, Paul says, should result in an exclusive Worship, the offering of our bodies as living sacrifices. It's a worship that we said last week. It's a worship that is first and foremost um, overt. Offer your body. Paul is saying, offer your public self. This isn't a private, something that we keep to ourselves, that when called upon, we acknowledge the name of Jesus. We unashamedly, unabashedly speak of ourselves. Yes, I follow the one who is love. I follow the one who is life. I follow Jesus. Maybe not very well at times, maybe very poorly at times, but I seek to follow him. So we worship him overtly, but we also worship him in a way that is ongoing. We are living sacrifices. It is exclusive. We are holy It is enjoyable. It's actually pleasing to our Father. We can actually please Him through our worship. And finally, it is is a worship that is intended. It's true and proper worship. Instead of worshiping what is undeserving of, of, uh, of of our worship, undeserving of our praise, we actually worship the one who is worthy of it. So in short, our complete salvation at the expense of His Son means our complete surrender. Let me say that again. Our complete salvation at the expense of the Son means our complete surrender. I give up. You're in charge. Please take over. Does that make sense? I don't want to be in charge anymore. I don't want it my way anymore. My way is stupid. It is self-sabotaging. It is destructive toward others. Okay, so again, this idea is very fundamental that... His salvation leads to our surrender. It leads to our service. Very briefly, there's a, I'm sure many of you have seen the movie adaptation to the Count of Monte Cristo. It's a wonderful, it actually came out quite a while ago, but there's this wonderful scene where basically it's a story of betrayal and revenge, where you have two friends, uh, one of whom betrays the other uh, to such an extent that the one who is betrayed ends up in prison, not just any prison, it's this prison uh, that's on an island um, just south of France, and uh, it's, an, it's a prison from which no one escapes. Of course, he manages through the help of a, of a priest who's also a prisoner to escape and makes his way, and, and, and makes his way off the island to, a, uh, to the shore. He doesn't really know where he is, but he's, I think he's just not in prison. So he's celebrating, and he's running along the beach celebrating until he comes across uh, some pirates. Um, and you're going to see here this notion of how salvation or the sparing of life leads to service. So here's this guy that's just been freed. He's running on the beach celebrating, not realizing that he's about to fall in with some very bad company. Go ahead, Ron, and roll that. <laughs> so, mi amici. I would ask who you are, but in view of your shredded clothes and the fact that the Chateau d'If is two miles away, what's the point? As for me, I am Luigi Vampa, a smuggler and a thief. My men and I have come to this island to bury alive one of our number who attempted to keep some stolen gold for himself instead of sharing it with his comrades. Interestingly enough, there are some of his more loyal friends who are insisting that I grant him mercy, which of course I cannot do. 
or I would quickly lose control of the old crew. That's why you are such a fortunate find. Why is that? You provide me with a way to show a little mercy to Jacopo, that maggot you see tied up over there, while at the same time not appearing weak. And as a special treat, the lads will get to see a little sport as well. How do I accomplish all this? We watch you and Jacobo fight to the death. If Jacobo wins, we welcome him back to the crew. If you win, I have given Jacobo the chance to live, even if he did not take advantage of it, and you can take his place on the boat. What if I win and I don't want to be a smuggler? Then we slit your throat and we're a bit short-handed. I find smuggling is the life for me and would be delighted to kill your friend the maggot. Oh, uh, by the way, Jacobo is the best knife fighter I've ever seen. Perhaps you should get out more. <laughs> <laughs> Release Jacobo and give him back his knife. Release. Then we'll let the games begin. Vampa, allow Jacopo to live. He's already suffered enough with the prospect of being buried alive. The men that wanted to see some sport have seen it. Those who wanted mercy for Jacopo will get it. And by keeping me in Jacopo, you will have yet another skilled sailor and fighter for your crew. It's a deal. What is his name? His name? We should call him Zatara. Sounds fearsome. It means driftwood. <laughs> I swear my dead relatives, even on the ones that are not feeling too good, I am your man forever. I know. Great run. Thank you. You see that? Sparing of life leads to service. Salvation that leads to service. Welcome that leads to worship. Listen to this. Think about this. Who else in your life will show you the welcome, the mercy, and the salvation that the Christian God offers through his son Jesus? His grace is scandalous. The reason I was reading through Luke's gospel, and there on the cross as Jesus is dying, you have two, other, uh, two others who are being crucified with him, both of whom are often called robbers. They're really more like terrorists. They're insurrectionists. And what does the one say to Jesus? He says what? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Here's a guy that's been nothing but, done nothing but destruction and sabotage his entire life. And at the very end, he says, yeah, you know, he, it, all, it clicks. It all comes together. And he says, hey, you mind if I just sneak in to last second? And what does Jesus say? Are you kidding me? What does he say? Today you will be with me in paradise. That's incredible. It's, I mean, it is infuriating. 
that the offer of the gospel comes to those who least deserve it. It is so unfair. And once you see that unfairness, you understand grace. Okay, so, so Paul here says that God's prior welcome means our pursuit of his worship. But it doesn't just mean the pursuit of his worship. It means something else. Listen to this. His prior worship means the pursuit of his wisdom. We saw that last week in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Do not conform, that is, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Paul urges us, listen to this, he urges us to stop drinking the Kool-Aid. The Kool-Aid of our culture. Whether it's higher education, whether it's the media, whether it's our parents, that's how we grew up. Whatever it is, Paul calls us away from being conformed to all that we know and being, rather, verse 2, transformed by the renewing of our minds. Okay, do not, be, do not conform, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What will that do? Look at the rest of the verse 2. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now listen to this, guys. This is just so important. I know we said this last week, but I'm going to say it again. Without this otherworldly wisdom, without this process of renewing your mind, without this counterworldly wisdom, you might say, God's will will make no sense. It won't. Do you see that? He says only once our minds are renewed will we then actually see the beauty, the wisdom, the goodness of his will. Let me say that again. Without this wisdom, we won't see what makes sense about his will concerning all manner of things, relationships, marriage, sex, money, time, politics, parenting, All of it, his entire will, will seem to us unhelpful. It will seem ugly. It will even seem inhumane. You've got to be kidding me. He demands us to do what? He he, he wants wives to do what? He wants husbands to do what? He wants me to do what with my body? What with my time? What with my money? Unless there is that renewing of the mind, his will will always be something that is ugly. Again, something that is uh, unhelpful at the very least, something that is unhumane, something that we look at and think, ugh, it's like, you know, for me anyway, it's like eating kale, right? It's just like, eat your vegetables, ugh, I have to do this. We won't see the beauty of his will, we won't see the wisdom of his will without that renewing of our mind. And so let me ask you, Christian, This is what being a Christian is all about. Daily renewing our minds, rethinking everything so that we might see the wisdom of his will. Does that describe you? Are you doing a timeout in your life and going, wait a minute, hold on, let me rethink how I think about my money. Let me rethink about how I think about my time. Let me rethink how I think about parenting. Can you say as a Christian, you know, I used to think of parenting like this. But now I think of it like this. I used to think of using my money in this way, but now I use my money in this way. I used to think of mercy like this, but now I think of it like this. I used to think of politics like this, but now I I think of it like this. There's this renewing of our mind that helps us to see a true wisdom, not a fake wisdom of the world, but a true wisdom that helps us see the beauty, the goodness of his law. He he describes God's will in verse 2. His good 
pleasing and perfect will. Let me just give a couple examples of this. I'm, uh, just, let me just one here. Uh, let's talk about parenting. Turn real quick to the left. If you want, if you want to follow along here in your, in your blue pew Bible, turn to the Proverbs. I love the Proverbs here. Um, Proverbs, so turn to, to page uh, right around 550 or so. 550. 553, chapter 14, verse 1. This is a parenting. And this, I think this is such an interesting example. Because so many of you are going to be relate to this. This will be, some of this you will resonate deeply. Some of you might not so much. But it's still highly instructive. It speaks of, of, the, of, of motherhood. Now listen to this. This is, this is page 553, chapter 14, verse 1. The wise woman builds her house. Isn't that beautiful? This picture of, of growing a home, building a home. But with her own hands, the foolish one tears hers down. You know, some of you maybe grew up in wonderful homes, wonderful moms. Others of you grew up in situations where your mom, with her own hands, destroyed the family. And, and, and what's, what I want you to see is that no one sets out, no mom, I don't think I know of any mom, sets out to go, you know what, I think I'm going to destroy my family with my own hands. I'm going to deliberately sabotage my, my, all my kids. I'm going to alienate my husband. I'm going to alienate my kids. I'm going to do everything I can to destroy my, 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 you know, this, 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 this marriage that I've gotten. I chose to get into. And Paul is saying there's another way. There's a counterintuitive, countercultural way of renewing our minds of discipleship, of following Jesus that enables us to see that his will is not inhumane, it is not unhelpful, it is not ugly, it is actually beautiful. It is highly instructive, it is counterintuitive, countercultural, absolutely. But it is compelling, and it's, it's life-giving. It coaches us into how to actually win at life. And that's exactly what the rest of Romans 12 through 15 does. What follows in the rest of these chapters is Paul unpacking specific ways of renewing one's mind so that the Romans might then what? Test and approve of what God's will is. You know what? You take God's will for a spin and you know what? It's not so bad. I think I might keep it. I think I might buy it. And there's a sense of actually be having the wisdom and seeing God's will, taking it for a test drive, and going, you know what, this is actually better. We test and approve what God's will is once our, our minds are renewed. Let me ask you again, is that, does that describe your life? Or are you still conforming to the ways of this world? Well, you know, I grew up this way. This is how I parented. This is how Dad parented me. Well, this is how I use my, this is how I always use my money. It always seems to work, you know, I manage from, from paycheck to paycheck. How we think about our words, how we use our words, how we speak and the words that we use and the way that we use them, has that undergone the radical renewal of our minds so that we radically redeploy our words. In the Proverbs 12, 18, if I remember right, reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So again, what's Paul doing in the rest of these chapters? He wants to renew our minds to test and approve what God's will is. And where does he start? Look in verse 3. What's the first thing that Paul wants us to see in a new way? It's ourselves. That is, when we taste his salvation, 
when we surrender ourselves to him, we, and when we become skeptical of, of, the, of what society is constantly screaming, telling us what to do, when we do that, we start to see ourselves in a strange new way. Look at verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Paul says to us, stop, he says to us, stop seeing yourself snobbishly or smugly. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. That is, not as a superhero, right? Like Buzz Lightyear. Ron, do you have that, uh, do you have that, that, that clip there? I want to show this clip here. I love this clip. This is from the first or second Toy Story. You just, when when, when the, all the rest of the toys first meet Buzz Lightyear, Buzz Lightyear is full of himself. He thinks so highly of himself, how important he is. He sees himself as the one who's there to what? Save the day. Do you know people like this? You do. We're talking about that more in a second. Right? So he said, Paul says, don't see yourself as a superhero. Go ahead and show that clip there. Ship has crash landed here by mistake. Yes, it is a mistake. Because you see, the bed here is my spot. I need to repair my turbo boosters. Do people still use fossil fuels or have you discovered crystallic fusion? Well, let's see. Uh, we got double A's. <clears throat> Watch yourself. <clears throat> Who goes there? Don't shoot! It's okay. Friends. Do you know these life forms? Yes. They're Andy's toys. All right, everyone. You're clear to come up. I am Buzz Lightyear. I come in peace. Oh, I'm so glad you're not a dinosaur. Wait, wait. Thank you. Now, thank you all for your kind welcome. Say, what's that button do? I'll show you. Buzz Lightyear to the rescue. Ooh. Hey, Woody's got something like that. His is a pool strike. Only, only it sounds like a car ran over it. Oh, yeah, but not like this one. This is a quality sound system. Probably all copper wiring, huh? So, uh, where are you from? Singapore? Hong Kong? Well, no. Actually, I, I'm, I'm stationed up in the Gamma Quadrant of Sector 4. As a member of the elite Universe Protection Unit of the Space Ranger Corps, I protect the galaxy from the threat of invasion from the evil Emperor Zerg, sworn enemy of the Galactic Alliance. Oh, really? I'm from Play School. And I'm from Mattel. Well, I'm not really from Mattel. I'm actually from a smaller company that was purchased and delivered. <laughs> you booked a sunny Verboski, shall I? With endless views of snow. Do you see the self-importance there? Do you see the savior complex? Do you see the sense of seeing ourselves more highly than we ought? A Buzz Lightyear is there to save the day. Again, do you know anyone like this? And the answer is you do. You know why? Because you know me. Right? That's my temperament. That's my bent. I want to save the world. I want to think of myself more highly than I ought. But there's also a way to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, not as a superhero, but as a sloth. Right? We can think, of, look at me go, I'm so important, I'm such a big deal, I'm a savior. But we can also think of ourselves, look at me, I'm so important, I'm so special that I don't need to do anything. And we can see that in this next clip. We see our picture of ourselves as a sloth. Go ahead and roll that run. This is Sid, the sloth. Hey, I'm up, I'm up. Hey, rise and shine, everybody. Huh? Zach? Marshall? Bertie? Uncle Fungus? Where is everybody? Come on, guys. We're gonna miss the my, the my, the my creation. They left without me. They do this every year. Why? Doesn't anyone love me? 
Isn't there anyone who cares about shit that's lost? Okay, that's great, Walk right the there. Door, you see someone um, so that, you do you know, see the idea here? What, you do you see you... what's going on with Sid? He is what? He's thinking about himself. He's feeling sorry for himself. You know people like this? That the, all they do is talk, you say, how are you doing? And what do they do? Start talking about all their woes. How, how, how life is so hard, how much. They just seeing this, this, they sit there sipping on self-pity soup. Right? And Paul says, don't think more highly of yourself. And what this is, and guys, this is, I know these are kind of silly clips, but I want you to hear what I'm about to say is super important. Is Sid the sloth dangerous? Is he harmful? In some sense, he seems pretty innocent. He's not really hurting anybody, etc. Listen to this. It's not what Sid does that's so disastrous. It's what Sid doesn't do. What concerns me most about Good Shepherd, guys, please, foot stomp, foot stomp, hear me out. What concerns me most about Good Shepherd isn't our sins of commission. We're out there doing drugs and whatever, okay? It's our sins of omission. Let me give you an example. It's my sins of omission. I mean, what's not happening? All the things that aren't happening. It's sort of the ghost of Christmas future, where you look and what? This is how things are because Scrooge didn't do anything. He didn't help. He didn't contribute. He didn't serve. Let me give an example. The single most important factor in a child's spiritual development is certainly whom? Their parents. But next to that is the involvement, crucial to that is the involvement of non-parental adults in their life. Sunday school teachers, youth group volunteers, family, friends, and others make a huge difference. And listen, gang, we are losing our kids. I'm not talking about Good Shepherd, I'm talking about the evangelical church. We are losing our kids. When I look at kids from ages 3 to grade 12, not only here at Good Shepherd, but throughout, I am not remotely hopeful at all. How are kids, how are kids going to make it? Where is the prayer? Where is the banging together to talk about parenting struggles? Where is the mutual encouragement? Where is the willingness to say, I'm not sure I have any idea what I'm doing as a parent. Can someone please help? And it's not only the little kids. What about our adult kids? Where is the banding together to pray for our non-Christian adult children who are going to hell? whose lives and whose relationships are hurting. Let me turn from parenting to something, uh, something as simple as attendance. When someone isn't here on a Sunday, or maybe two Sundays, three or four Sundays, do, do we notice? Again, not with a, with a, you know, like a clipboard. This isn't about criticism. It's about, hey, are, are they okay? I mean, do we care? Do we follow with them? Hey, so-and-so, I missed you at church today. Just check it in and see if you're okay. You're missed. What does it say about us that we don't bother to check up on one another? Doesn't it just confirm the real truth that despite all the niceness, despite all our cordiality, despite all our talk, we really don't care about each other that much? No wonder Paul says in verse 9, go back to Romans chapter 12, verse 9, what does he say? Love must be sincere. Wow, we're going to talk more about that. See, if Paul wants us to see, if he, Paul wants us to see ourselves as not with mere smugness or superiority, neither as a superhero nor as a sloth, 
How does he want us to see ourselves? Look at verse 3 again. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. That is to say, Paul wants us to see ourselves not smugly, but soberly. Not as a superhero, not as a sloth, but are you ready for this? But as a servant. And where do I see that in verse 3? In verse 3, he speaks of seeing ourselves, quote, with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has, tribu- that has attributed, uh, distributed to each of you. Now, this, is, this last phrase here is actually a difficult phrase. The dr- a direct translation is, with sober judgment, to each just as God has distributed a measure or a standard of faithfulness. Or faith. It's just faith. I would prefer faithfulness. Let me say that again. So the idea is that God is distributing to each one of us a specific standard of faithfulness. That is to say that God, when we become Christians, God gives us a certain standard, a certain way that we individually are to be faithful. Does that make sense? And that particular way has to do with what's called being a member of the body of Christ. Think of my family as an example. So I have five kids, and, and we have I think the twin girls who are 16. They're comparable, but the rest are different ages. And yet everyone is contributing, and they're contributing according to their own specific given tasks. Does that make sense? And rather than the sense of, oh, well, one's 16 and one's, you know, 20 months, and you're comparing them in terms of their intelligence, their education, or whatever, each one has a certain role to play, and they're different roles. And what faithfulness looks like for Harrison is very different from what faithfulness looks like for one of my twin daughters. But it's still faithfulness. And he's saying, you're not called to be a superhero. You're not called to be a sloth. You're simply called to be faithful to the specific task that he's given you as a servant. It's brilliant. Does that make sense? It's not about who's the smartest here. Therefore, you're the smartest, so you're the most important. Again, you look at our family and you see who is most influential in getting the Clark family through the last two years. Through, the, through all of the pandemic and through the politics, all the whatever, all the stuff. You know who was most influential? I'm sorry to say. Guess. Can you guess? Harrison. Yeah, right? I mean, this kid shows up on March 31st, right? The hospital's empty. And it's amazing what a, what, what a buoy, what a source of laughter and joy. Yeah, you know, sleepless nights, and you know, all, all that sort of thing. But still, the joy that he has given us simply by being Harrison. And I want each of you to stop, say, time out. Stop thinking like a superhero. That's what I do all the time. How can I save the world? And then I'm exhausted. And I'm angry. Why isn't the world being saved? Right? Or sloth. Just, I give up, forget it. Forget the world, just do what I want. Paul says, no. Standard is faithfulness. And he's given, listen to this. Let me read on here in verses 4 through the beginning of verse 6. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. So Paul is saying that each of us as servants is one, we're different. We're individual members, different body parts, if you will. We have different gifts, verse 6. We're different. Okay? We've given, been given a distinct role in, in the body of Christ as members of the body of Christ. An eye, an ear, a hand, a foot, 
We have different gifts. So first, where each of us is different. Secondly, each of us is dependent. As members of a body, you can, what happens if you cut off a hand? What happens if you gouge out an eye? What happens if you lose a foot? There's a sense that it will not survive on its own. Everywhere the world is communicating to us this idea of independence, of autonomy, of I don't need anyone or anything at all. Paul says, no, we are different when we are dependent. We're not superheroes. We're not sloths. We're servants. Servants in the body of Christ who are each one of us different, each one of us dependent, and finally, each one of us indispensable. Just as we are needing the other members, we are needed by the other members. Do you see that? Paul says, you've been saved. Surrender your life. Rethink, get that wisdom, that smartness that is countercultural, and that smartness, that wisdom begins with how we see ourselves, not too highly as superheroes or sloths, but as servants in the body of Christ who are mutually dependent, mutually or all different, all of us, every single one of us, indispensable gang. Those of you who have various ongoing, besetting, uh, chronic ailments, for example, diabetes, you know the cost to the entire body when one part uh, doesn't work right, right? I think of our, our, our little cat that we got recently has what's called FIV, feline immunodeficiency virus. It's like HIV, but for cats, okay? And because of this one thing that doesn't work about the cat, its immune system is compromised. Guess what happens? Guess what, guess what suffers? The entire cat. Okay, listen, gang. When we don't offer ourselves in service, when we neglect the gift that God has given us, that we will feel so much joy and, and love and fulfillment and satisfaction in doing, the entire body hurts. So quickly, let me just, Paul then lists here in the remaining section, he lists these, uh, the, uh, some examples of, of gifts, and they're so beautiful. Verse 6, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If our gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith, or in accordance to faithfulness, really. Do it faithfully. Verse 7, if it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is encouraging, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is, if it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. And Paul, this is not a comprehensive list. It's actually quite a random list. And Paul's just saying, here are these various gifts. And he calls us to pursue the burden, the gift, the longing, the desire that we have. And gang, it's very simple to discover it, to say, what do I love to do? Isn't that amazing that the gift that you have is usually something that you love to do, you enjoy doing. There's a sense of satisfaction, a sense of fullness. Yes, it's weary. Yes, it's sacrificial. Yes, it may, it, it may have a cost to it. There's a sense, I, mean, I love, for example, and I'm picking my, Ron doesn't know I'm doing this, but I'm picking on Ron Bardshire. I love when Ron says to me, and I know he's, I mean, he spends a tremendous amount of time looking over finances, and it's sacrificial. There are other things that he could be doing. But I know at the same time, he loves numbers. And I love that he loves numbers. You know why? Because I don't love numbers at all. Okay, but that's how the body works. That we all are called to do the things that we love to do, the things that are naturally we're naturally good at. Sometimes the deacons will be doing something, and they know how to fix some part of the facility. I think, thank God, they know how to do it because I don't have a clue. 
right? And these various gifts, that's how we come together as a body synergistically to serve, to, to fulfill the mission of God. I'm not going to take the time this morning just because we're, we're short on time. But each one of these gifts is so beautiful. Aside from the, the first gift that is foundational and has passed away prophecy, the rest of them, if you have questions about that, I'm happy to, to talk to you about them after the service. But verse 7 and 8 speak of these beautiful gifts, serving, coming alongside, helping someone. Do you know how many people are lonely today trying to make do life on their own? You come along and you serve them. Teaching. You know how, how ignorant people are of the Bible. It speaks specifically of equipping people, explaining the word to people. Verse 8. Encouraging. Do you know how many people need encouragement? They need a word of affirmation. Just a word, hey, keep it up. You got this. You can do this. It can make all the difference in the world. If it is giving, let them give generously. What is it like to be given something generously? Just lavishly. Someone just spends themselves on you. If it is to lead, that it speaks here of administrative, organizational gifts. Boy, that's needed here at Good Shepherd. I am terrible at administration. Managing, uh, organizing, looking ahead, planning, scheduling, all those sort of things. I can do it. It drains me. It just drains me. Those of you who think, oh man, I could, I could do that. I could, I could organize this little tiny, you know, uh, podunk church with my one hand tied behind my back. We need you. Absolutely need you. Paul concludes, if it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Isn't that beautiful? It's so beautiful to see the body of Christ at work. So to conclude here, the idea is very simple. Because we've been saved, we are called to surrender. And as we surrender our lives, we're called to think in a new way, not according to the ways of this world, the sirens of this world, but to pursue a wisdom, a smartness, that is very countercultural, is very counterintuitive. And Paul says the first thing that you've got to learn in the renewing of our mind is how you see yourself. Not as a superhero, not as a sloth, but as a servant. A servant who's a member of the body of Christ called to serve. And what's so beautiful here that I want you to want to close with this is what God, our God wants most from us is what he gives us most for us. And that's faithfulness. He is faithful. Remember our call to worship, celebrating God's faithfulness. This is what God wants. He doesn't care about how much you got. He cares that whatever you got, you just use it faithfully. We all know the story of the widow's might, right? When Jesus is sitting there with his disciples, everyone's throwing, all these rich people are throwing in all this stuff, and this widow comes along. And what does she do? She puts in two copper coins all that she's got. And what does Jesus say? Do you see that woman? She has given more than everyone else. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your talent. He doesn't need you to be a superhero. Thank God. He simply needs us to be faithful.